0: Father, you, you know the battles that each of us are fighting day by day. The battles that come from outside of us. As we see the world around us, the battles real close to us in relationships that are hurting or strained or broken. Or the battles in our, in our own heart division in our own soul when we want to do the thing we're supposed to do, but find that we keep doing the thing that we don't want to do. Lord, whatever battles it is that each of us are fighting today, we declare that our lives and this world belongs to you. And even though the wrongs and the hurt in this world often seem really strong, you are the ruler yet. And while we all face our own battles, that you will win the battle. That Jesus and his, his death and his resurrection and his, his rule will be brought into our lives and into our world in every way. And heaven and earth will be one. Lord, make it come quickly. Amen. A few years back, we did a series of sermons on the theme of, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to pray for the children as they go. Father, thank you for these kids, and I pray that they will know and experience you today in their classes. We thank you for our teachers and for the work that they are doing for them today. Amen. Amen. Sometime in August, I'll remember. We did this series a few years back on the theme of the presence of God. Uh, From Genesis to Revelation, there's this theme that emerges over and over again about God's presence with us. Uh, The good news of the, the first two pages of the Bible is that God is there. That's the good news. And the good news of the last two pages of the Bible is that God is there. And the bad news in between is that there is this deep rupture between God and us because of our sin. There is a division between us and God. And during that series, and I've repeated this before, that heaven, God's place, and earth, our place, were meant to be together. But what God joined together, it was separated by humanity and our sin. And the theme of that sermon series was to remind us that God is making his place and our place the same place. And that is the good news of Revelation 21 and 22. So we have just this week and next week in our time in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And next week, we're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22, those last two pages of the Bible, when we have this vision that John sees of that time when God's place and our place will be the same place and get a taste, a little taste of what it's going to be like when his presence fills all of creation, when all of the wounds that we have are completely healed, when all division is over, when sin ceases, when all destruction is destroyed, when, when death itself is put to death. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. But before we get there, there is some work that God needs to do first. Before God's place and our place can be the same place, there is some healing and purifying that God needs to do. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, will be satisfied in earth and heaven Will be one. And so today we're looking at Revelation 19 and 20, and we're looking at this difficult and hard news that comes right before the good news at the very end. Revelation 19 and 20 is the account of God's final and decisive purifying of this world so that heaven and earth can be joined together. Revelation 19 and 20 are not bad news but it's hard and difficult news to hear god's work of purifying is good but it is painful and it is necessary let's pray lord we thank you for this word i pray that we would hear it and receive it today lord i pray that you would convict us in every area of our life where we need the the penetrating revealing of your word that you would open our hearts to you and make us open to what you have for us today. Amen. So if you've done any studying in the book of Revelation in the past, you know that there are, are different views in the Bible related to what's called the millennium. In Revelation chapter 20, it speaks about the reign of Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. And there are three main views that have existed throughout you know, thousands of years, about what that millennium is all about, when it comes, how it comes, where it's going to be in God's timeline in history. At least three different views. They're called premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And if you've never heard those words, don't worry about it. It's okay. But if you have, and if you're interested in learning about those different views, I'm not going to talk about it today. But I have a great resource for you. If you go to YouTube and type in an evening of eschatology there's a 2 hour conversation John Piper is the host of that and it's three other uh, gentlemen who hold each of these three different views it's it's a it's a great introduction to these three different views and i believe that that d- debate while it's important the debate debate between those three different views really in my opinion has has really put too much emphasis on where we land in those three areas, and I think misses a lot of what Revelation is all about. Whatever particular differences there may be on those three different views, here are a couple of things that those three views agree on when it comes to Revelation 19 and 20, that all three of these views agree on. And this is going to be our main points for today. The first is this. All views agree that the world we live in is not neutral, that evil is real here. And secondly, that God is going to deal with that, that Jesus will have his way. All three views, postmillennialism, premillennialism, amillennialism, wherever you stand, that the world we live in is not neutral, that evil is real here, and that God is going to deal with it. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be won. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 21, which is the description of Jesus as the rider on the white horse. Now, Jesus throughout Revelation we've seen is most oftenly referred to as what? As the lamb. 28 times Jesus is referred to as the lamb at the beginning of the bible He's also referred to as the son of man here towards the end He's described as this rider on the white horse In every other place in revelation He is described as the lamb and here in revelation 19 He comes as the rider on a white horse as a warrior and judge to win the battle against his enemies I'm going to read revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 Would you stand up with me as we read the scripture today? I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to walk through the first five verses or so of Revelation chapter 19, verse starting at verse 11, to describe this rider on the white horse. In Rome, whenever there was a victory in a big battle, the general of the army would come riding into a city on a white horse to declare his victory. And here heaven is open and John sees Jesus on a white horse, the one who wins the battle, and he is called Faithful and True. The reason that Jesus is able to be the judge is because he is the only one that is faithful and true. At the beginning of Revelation, Jesus is called the faithful witness. He is the one who knows and sees all things. He is faithful and true. All of our judgments are only partially accurate. We see through a glass dimly, but his judgments are always perfect because he sees perfectly. He is faithful and true. In verse 12, we're told that his eyes are flames of fire. When he sees us, he sees everything that there is to see, and he is able to see into our hearts with his purifying fire. And it says that he also has on his head many crowns. And notice here that Jesus only has one head, not many heads like the beast. Remember in Revelation, the rule of the beast is always Counterfeit. It's always trying to look like the rule of Jesus, but never quite the same thing. His authority is stolen and fake. It's counterfeit. And so Revelation describes the beast as having seven heads with seven crowns. But Jesus has one head that holds many crowns. In Ephesians 1, it says that, It is God's final will and purpose to bring all things under one authority or one head, Jesus Christ. That's God's plan and purpose for the whole world, is to bring all things under the authority of Jesus. The beast, who represents political authority in the world, can never bring everything together. The best that he can do is to have these seven heads with seven different crowns on it, but Jesus has one head with many crowns. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to him. That's what this symbol means. And there is a name written on Jesus that no one knows. I want to suggest to this that what this means to us is that no matter how much you are told about who Jesus is, no matter how much you learn about his character, you will never, ever know everything that there is to know about him. He is beyond our understanding. He bears a name that no one else knows. Verses 13 and 14. This is the description of Jesus leading his armies into battle. But it is a strange looking army. There are some strange things about Jesus riding on this horse and also some strange things about this army, especially about the clothes that they are wearing. Did you notice what Jesus is wearing? And did you notice what the army, the saints are wearing? Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is before the battle has ever happened. And it's dipped in blood. So whose blood is it? Whose blood is it? His own. The blood is his blood spilled on the cross. The victory has already been won, even as he's riding into this battle. And the armies that are following them, there's something very strange about their clothes, too. They're not wearing military fatigues. They're not wearing battle gear. They aren't driving tanks or carrying weapons. This is a very, very strange army. What are they wearing? White linen. Just above in verse 8, it says that fine linen is a symbol of the righteous acts of the saints. There's nothing else that we need to wear in this battle other than our faithful obedience to Jesus. When the Lord returns, the only thing that the armies of the Lord will be wearing is fine white linen, which we are told are the righteous acts that we do for Christ. The final battle described in Revelation 19 and 20 is never fought by people at all. At the final battle, our fine white linen isn't going to get dirty, let alone bloody. Listen to why. Verse 15 Because out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. The sword comes from his mouth. This is a symbol of the word of God, which the book of Hebrews says is sharper than any double-edged sword. The work of judgment that God needs to do in the world and in your own life can't be done with metal and steel. It's not work that is done with weapons forged by human hands. It's a work done through his word, which he reveals and uncovers and exposes all things. The word of God is the only weapon that is needed in this battle. And so we see back in Genesis chapter 1, just as God created the world with his word, simply spoke, and brought everything into existence and brought everything into its proper order in the same way in the end The lord will merely speak And all things will be brought into proper order Evil and sin and injustice will be done away with And we read here that those who are unrepentant and who resist god will face his judgment will face the sword of his judgment The dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, will be dealt with once and for all, not by the means of human armies, but by the King of kings and the Lord of lords with the double-edged sword that comes from his mouth, his word. Friends, this is very important, that the final battle is never fought by people. It's fought for us by Jesus, who simply speaks his word. The one who spoke creation into existence, the one who... Spoke and said, be still to the stormy sea. The one who spoke and a blind person saw and spoke and a deaf person could hear said, Lazarus, come out. It's through his word that this battle is going to be won. He speaks and the battle's over. (laughs) There's no battle fought at all. We have no description of a battle at all. He speaks and it's over. This is the vision. Yeah, let's clap for that. And you can, you can say amen. You can clap. This is all really good news, even though it may be hard too. This is the vision that John sees when heaven is opened up for him in Revelation 19. This is the writer leading his armies into battle, but he wins the battle for us. Now, the rest of Revelation 19 and 20 focus on God's judgment on two different groups. Two different groups that experience God's judgment. The first group is the fate of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And their destiny is eventually all the same place, the lake of fire. For the first group, God's judgment comes on the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, and they all go to one place, the lake of fire. The second group is people. Human beings face God's judgment. And under God's judgment, there are two different destinies that human beings go to, life or death, the new heavens and new earth or the lake of fire. Those are the two places that people go to at God's judgment. Let's start by talking about God's judgment on the dragon and the beast going to read revelation 19 19 through 20 again and then i'm going to read chapter 20 verses 7 through 10 and these are the descriptions of the fate of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet friends this is the account of god's final undoing of all evil all source of evil is undone right here in these verses then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Again, but no battle is ever fought. Fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God is going to deal with the source of all evil. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that we only get hints in the Bible about where Satan comes from, but we know exactly where he's going. So while we don't know a lot of ideals about How satan got into the garden why he was there in the first place That's all a really strange story even before adam and eve ever sinned what the serpent was doing there We don't know any of the source of that, but we do know his end The source of evil and temptation the source of sin and destruction will be destroyed The destroyer will be destroyed the author of death will die And as followers of Jesus, this truth of God's final dealing with the source of all evil should cause us as believers to be the most hopeful people in the world. Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to do this thing. But friends, I hear, I hear a lot of hopelessness in Christians in America today. And I know where that comes from. I understand that feeling of hopelessness and despair. Just five minutes scrolling through my Facebook newsfeed, I get that feeling of despair. I get it. But I feel like we as Christians in America have become some of the most fearful and reactionary and defensive people around When we should be the most hopeful and non-defensive people around because we know he's coming back to win this victory. Despair is not the way of Jesus. Worry and fear should not be Christian habits. Followers of Jesus don't need to wring their hands about the moral decay of our world and sigh about just how terrible things are. He's coming back. Now, by all means, pray about the terrible things that we see all around us. There is plenty of it, but all is not lost. Jesus will win. And we should be the most hopeful people around knowing that, even though though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is our Father's world. The battle isn't done. Jesus who died will be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be won. We can be people of hope. Let's talk then about God's judgment of people. God's judgment of people. God's final confrontation and purifying of sin and evil and the source of all, uh, of all evil, Satan and the devil, that will happen in the end. And we're also told that God's final dealing with sin and evil also includes people, you and me, every single one of us. God gets up close and personal. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, the And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God deals with each of us directly and personally. The effects of sin in the world include the principalities and powers of the world, the big and obvious evils of war and famine and murder and racism and greed. And it also includes your own personal sin. The one that others know about, as well as those secret ones that are hidden in your heart that only he knows about. And God is going to deal with those too. He's going to purify the world of everything that we have, we have done to contaminate his world, whatever contribution that we have made to contaminate his world, he is going to deal with it. Revelation twenty tells us that there will be a day where we will stand before God, and our lives will be judged by him, our maker and We are told here that we must give an account for our deeds, our deeds, our actions. Reveal where our heart and our faith is. If our faith is in money, our deeds will reveal that. If our faith is in comfort and security, our deeds, our actions will reveal that. If our faith is in myself, my deeds will reveal that. There is this moment in Jesus's ministry where people come to him and they ask him what they need to do. What deeds do we need to do, Jesus, in order to enter into your kingdom? And what he says to them is this one thing, believe, believe, believe in the one that the father sent. The most important deed that you can ever do is to believe, to believe in him, to place your faith in Jesus, to believe that his robe dipped in blood was for you so that you can have a robe that's white and clean. This believing is the most important and first deed that you can do. It's the deed that leads to eternal life. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, that is, suffer the lake of fire, the second death, but have eternal life resurrection. So these verses here say that there are two destinies for people. There is one destiny for the beast and the false prophet and the, and the dragon. There are two destinies for Potentially for people. For those who have ignored or rejected Jesus and his forgiveness, the weight of sin and the wrath of God remains on them. Revelation 20 says that those who have followed the beast, those who have remained in their sins and have not given themselves to Jesus and receive the forgiveness he offers, they will remain in their sin and they will experience the lake of fire, the second death. But what about those who followed The lamb. What about those of you who are followers of Jesus, who do believe in him? What does God's judgment look like for us? The Bible talks about two different things when it talks about God's judgment when it comes to followers of Jesus. And I think that we need to hold both of them in tension together. On one hand, there's this promise that when we receive Jesus, that God tossed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so that sin that I'm committed in this life will not be held against me because I believed, because I placed my faith in Jesus, and because I was baptized into him, his life becomes my life. But on the other hand, in Revelation chapter 20, it says here that there are books that are opened that give an account for the deeds that we have done, that give an account for how we have spent our life, We are told that all of our deeds will be judged, whether they are good or evil. Jesus told his disciples that all things are going to be exposed and brought into the light, that what was whispered in secret will be known, that every idle word will be judged. And I think that we can't forget either one of these, that on the one hand, our sins are tossed as far as the east is from the west, and on the other, our deeds are in this book, and they will be exposed. So how do we hold these two truths together? On judgment day, we are going to see the wrath of God against sin and evil. And for those who know Jesus, because we will see our sin and his wrath, we will also then know how very much it cost Jesus to forgive us. Ryan David Cochran's sin will be exposed they will be brought into the light in the light of god's judgment and i will see my sin for how ugly and horrible it really is and because of that i will also see in that moment how good god's grace and mercy and love for me really is at the same time my sin will not be ignored it will be dealt with I will see how far God really went to make it sure that I, Ryan David Cochran, could be in his presence. I'm going to see what it costs for my name to be written in the book of life. For the follower of Jesus, I want to suggest to you that judgment day is not God simply pretending that my sin never happened. Judgment day is the day where God will reveal and uncover and lay my sin bare and then deal with it finally. Through the blood of Jesus. Judgment Day is the confrontation of evil, the undoing of sin in every way. And on that day, we are going to see how God dealt with all evil the evil of the beast and the dragon and the false prophet, and your own evil, your own sin. He is going to deal with it through the blood of Jesus. Judgment Day is often talked about in churches as a way to scare people. And there is a place for holy and reverent fear because the judgment that I'm talking about today is real. It is going to happen. What I also want to say to you today is that you don't need to be afraid. There is a way for you today to be ready for it and to long for it. To desire that it would come. And then it would come quickly. We will stand before our maker and give an account for our life. And the invitation for you today is to say, if you haven't done this before, that I know that I cannot possibly stand before God because of what I have done. And to simply turn around and to place our faith to believe in Jesus, to simply admit that we are wrong and that God is right and that I need his forgiveness. And to receive it, to receive his forgiveness as a gift from God. And when you receive it, you are then a child of the king, a citizen of the kingdom, and you can live the rest of your life as a friend of God. Judgment day does not have to be a fearful thing. It can be a thing that you long for and desire with all of your heart. Judgment day is coming, and this means we can be a people of hope, friends, God is not going to allow evil to have, the fo- to have the final word. The bodies that we have right now that ache and that decay and that waste away, they're going to be resurrected and glorified. And one day we will run and not grow weary and walk and not be faint. There's going to be no more sickness and no more cancer, no more pandemics, no more government corruption, no more tears, No more coming to the end of the month and not able to pay my bills. None of that. There will always be enough. There's not going to be any more war because our weapons are going to be turned into gardening tools. There's going to be no more feeling like you're not enough because you are going to know in the deepest parts of who you are that you are a child of God. You will never again wonder if you're enough. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. This is what Judgment Day leads to. It's the doorway into this place. It's coming. And it will come so that these good things that God wants to bring in his world will come. So that earth and heaven will be one. And so are you ready? And are you hoping for it today? I'll ask for it again. Are you ready, friends? And are you hoping for it today? Yes. Amen. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would come quickly. God, I pray for each person in this room. If the, if the thought of standing before you is a terrifying thing, Lord, I pray that you would allow that fear to move us to love for you. That perfect love casts out all fear. And so I pray today as we come to you and recognize that you are a holy and awesome God who deserves all of our reverent fear, has also made a way for us to come and to be with him. So Lord, I pray that we would know that today. Every single one of us, Lord, I pray if anyone today has anything going on in their own heart any hiding that they are doing from you, that that would be exposed and revealed by you and that you would show them today your grace and your mercy. Lord, and I do pray that judgment day would become a day that we long for because we know that on that day, your justice will perfectly come, that you will undo and unravel all of our sin and our evil. You will heal all of our brokenness and heal all of our wounds. Lord, we pray and we long for that day to come. Amen.